Hey, it's Jeff, and welcome to Commune, a global wellness community and online course platform featuring some of the world's greatest teachers. We are on a mission to inspire, heal, pass down wisdom, and bring the world closer together. This is the Commune podcast, where each week we explore the ideas and practices that help us live this healthy, connected, and purpose-filled life. So if you're hunkered down at home, this may be a good opportunity to check out our course platform at onecommune.com, where you will find programs from Marianne Williamson, Deepak Chopra, Russell Brand, Wim Hof, Brendan Burchard, Adrian Mishler, and many other brilliant personal development and wellness luminaries, including my wife, Skylar. Our courses span yoga, meditation, spiritual development, functional medicine, recovery, and social impact, essentially everything that you need to be holistically well. Just go to onecommune.com. And if you are one of the superheroes on the front line, a medical professional, food provider, someone in the supply chain, delivery worker, scientist, biologist, government worker, you will be stressed to your limits, both psychologically and physically. Even 30 seconds of deep breathing and grounding can help you stay centered, focused, and healthy. We need you, and we support you. So if you are someone on the front lines and could benefit from a meditation course on your phone, in your pocket, just email me at jeffk at onecommune.com, and I'll set it up. So I'm recording this on April 20th, 2020. Many people around the world have been in quarantine now for about six weeks, and there is no doubt it's been an excruciating time for many people who have lost loved ones, and there is tremendous financial anxiety across a broad spectrum of people, folks that have lost their jobs and small businesses struggling to stay afloat. Lurking in the shadows of the pandemic, however, I am seeing a new story begin to coalesce. In this odd sort of forced monasticism, people are doing with less. And stripped of some of the conveniences of modern life, there is a new set of priorities emerging. Maybe cooking is actually better than going out. Maybe less convenience is more fulfilling. Maybe remote work is more efficient and better for the environment. Maybe growing a carrot in the backyard makes it taste better. And maybe I should finally find out my neighbor's name. By extension, I think there is the opportunity to reimagine some of our structures and systems. Maybe we can create sustainable local economies that don't require the exploitation of anonymous workers and the desecration of the planet. Maybe we can re rediscover a passion for civic engagement and reinvigorate the public square. If ever there was an opportunity to introduce a more local way of life, one not engineered for corporate globalism, it is now. My guest on the show today is Helena Norberg-Hodge, the founder and director of Local Futures. She has been a prominent leader in the localization movement for 40-plus years, and Helena has penned numerous books on the subject, including Ancient Futures, 
learning from Ladakh, and Local is Our Future, Steps to an Economics of Happiness. Helena is also the producer and co-director of the award-winning film, The Economics of Happiness. She is a widely respected analyst of the impact of the global economy and international development on local communities, local economies, and personal identity. She is a leading proponent of decentralization as a means of countering those impacts. One note, uh, apologies for the somewhat compromised sound quality of this episode, but I think Helena's brilliance trumps any lack of fidelity. Hope you enjoy. My name is Jeff Krasno, and welcome to Commune. Thank you for being on the show. Thank you for coming. Uh, glad to be here. Um, and uh, yeah, I would say that right now, um, and I always like to give some context because the global situation is very fluid. So we're speaking on, well, I'm in America, so it's Thursday, April 9th. You're in Australia, it's Friday, April 10th. Um, and, and obviously we're in a very, very liquid situation, but I think it's incredibly prescient to be speaking with you in this moment in history, because from what I know about you and your work, your central philosophy is essentially that we can address some of the world's most essential and salient issues from global warming to income inequality and human misery through the concept of localization. And I'm curious as to how you came to that determination. Well, my journey in all of this started about 45 years ago when I was, I was living in Paris. I was quite a normal person. I wasn't an activist. I was very concerned about the environment. I was concerned about, about you know, society as well. I had done some social work. But I was um, you know, not an activist. I had become a linguist. I spoke a lot of languages. I've been asked about as part of a film team to this unknown place called Ladakh or Little Tibet, which is the westernmost part of Tibet, but it belongs politically to India. And it was a part that had been sealed off from the modern world because the Indian government wanted to protect this as a part of, uh, part of India. They wanted to be on the other side of the high Himalayan range. They didn't want the Chinese, you know, breathing down on them from the those mountaintops, so it was a protected, very sensitive, strategic military area. And that meant that when it was suddenly thrown open to outsiders, essentially to place it on the map as Indian territory, so that the world would know this part of Tibet belongs to India, they threw it open and um, a documentary team from Germany was one of the first film team to go out to try to film this ancient culture and they wanted me to come along because I picked up languages quickly and to try to help to communicate with these people who were so um, untouched. And I thought I'd be going for six weeks and then going back to Paris, which I was, you know, I quite loved living there. And I didn't expect to find my entire life turned around, my worldview turned upside down. And, you know, for the rest of my life, it's sort of like, 
before Ladakh and after Ladakh. And what I encountered was this very rare situation of a people that had never been colonized. And they haven't, hadn't even been affected by the missionaries. And I'm finding now, you know, as I, I hear about other peoples that are supposedly traditional, and I, you know, like in the heart of Papua New Guinea, where it's, people think they're seeing you no know, totally ancient culture, they're called Joseph and Mary. <laughs> you know, and, you know, we don't realize the impact of this type of conquering of a dominant worldview, which was actually very unhealthy. You know, the Christian worldview was about repressing, you know, our senses, and, you know, the body and the senses were sinful, and we were made to feel that we were born in original sin. So it's a, it's a very, very negative uh, influence on what I now experience in Ladakh, on people who felt so completely at ease with themselves, who felt so authentically themselves. You know, there was a genuine individualism, which it took me years to actually understand. I, I ended up totally falling in love with the people, it's also the most beautiful place I've ever seen. But it was the people that just made me stop and made me, you know, give up my, my job in Paris. And I was, you know, I had, as a Westerner, I had the opportunity to, to do a thesis on the language. I had met a professor from the University of London and was impressed with how much I'd learned of the language. So when the filming was finished, I stayed to do the language. I helped to compile... Um, first sort of Ladakhi in dictionary and and learned a, a lot of the language very quickly um, and I you know I said this was a big region about the size of Austria but only about a hundred thousand people in small villages and as I went through the whole region collecting folk stories and so on talking to people everywhere I went people would describe themselves as Tungos, Zabos, which means plenty to eat, plenty to drink, no signs of hunger, no signs of poverty at all as we know it. It was a time of paradise that most Westerners who came out in the early years, and I have to say even today people are inspired, which sort of amazes me, but in the early days people would, particularly women would say, oh, you know, a paradise, and I feel like I've come home, I feel like I must have lived here in another lifetime. And I came also to realize that, that it took me years to realize things like, you know, once being out in the mountains and it was getting dark and I saw a group of men coming my way, probably about 10 men. And I realized that it didn't even enter my mind that I needed to be worried about my safety. And I realized that even in Sweden, where I would say, you know, the sort of, feminine and the status of women was higher than in any industrialized country I know, still there hadn't been that that strong balance and strong feminine side, which meant that people were more, you know, there was greater peace and above all greater joy and vitality than any place I had ever encountered. Now, I hope that wasn't too long-winded. Uh, because there's an infinite amount to say about Ladakh, but I, uh, but I, uh, I, <laughs> I think I do want to add that 
um, you know, the, the reality was that for me as a Westerner to just sort of settle there and say this is a total paradise would have been difficult because there was no glass in the windows and the temperatures dropped to minus 40 in the winter. And, you know, I had a bit of a struggle with, uh, with fleas and bed bones and, you know, certain levels of discomfort. But I probably, I would have considered actually second there, but it wasn't possible because for political reasons, you weren't allowed to stay for more than six months at a time. And so that's what I did for many years. And then as changes came, um, you know, it's, it is not a place where I want to settle because basically I got a bird's eye view of how our dominant global economic system heavily subsidized not just fossil fuels, but at every level we've been subsidizing and deregulating global economic activity at the expense of local economic activity. And this, you know, was a lesson that I learned gradually, you know, as I saw butter transported over the Himalayan mountains, coming in and selling for half the price of local butter. And, you know, the butter from the farm, literally a five-minute walk away, costing twice as much. And, and I saw in a very rapid period how this process of supporting global economy meant that it was completely linked to a continuous process of urbanization, concentrating everyone into larger and larger urban centers, which suited the long-distance traders. You know, McDonald's can't deliver a McDonald's to every village of the world. It's a, you know, this concentration, which I don't think has been a conscious process, for me, <clears throat> this whole system, the way it's developed, has essentially been allowed to grow into a, a type of monstrous, destructive force. Many of people haven't understood it. And I would say even from left and right, there has not been a clear stepping back to look at the links between these economic policies and the effect on the ground. But I got this bird's eye view and it was like, it was like a scientific experiment because there was one road leading into Ladakh and you could just sort of see these variables coming in and transforming the life of the people there. And it was both a structural sort of warfare on a healthy economy and a psychological warfare on human and societal well-being. And it was this dual prong that again, because I spoke the language fluently at a time when people were completely self-respecting. You know, I sort of believe that why, you know, so few people have been talking about these things is that very, you know, there are probably very few people alive today who have actually really experienced deeply that degree of self-respect and being so relaxed and at peace with who you are and your culture and your way of doing things, a sense of rightness, a sense of empowerment that I experienced so deeply. And then I saw these variables that suddenly and fairly rapidly affected particularly the young where 
schooling, which you know started as part of this process. The schooling was actually a training for a job in the city, and it completely robbed the children of the knowledge of their local resources, the particular plants, how to manage the water, the soils different from place to place, all of that knowledge which had allowed them to grow food, make their own clothes, build their own houses, all those basic needs were met from the region. Even within the region there was some trade, but there was for the basics, it was within reach, it was human, direct contact, it was human scale, people relating to each other. They had developed many structures of how to manage the water, how they took turns doing that. They had developed, you know, structures where groups of families supported each other. So that these were, I think, very cleverly in a very harsh climate. They had something called the Pasmoon, which meant that about four families or up to 10 were linked in this institution that extended beyond their village so that these other people were always there to help you. That traditionally, they were there to take care of the birth, the marriage, and the funeral. So they actually washed the body. They, they did all that work and came together in a group to support each other. So all these institutions of local interdependence that had evolved and existed literally over thousands of years, um, were suddenly just trashed, you know, almost overnight, as people went into a city where they were dependent on completely anonymous forces for their salary, for um, for, for, their, for their salary, for their um, the food that they were getting, and not knowing if the price of bread is going to go up tomorrow, created almost overnight a sort of neurotic concern mm. to save money and to try to be secure by you know, amassing as much as possible. But also the schooling, which robbed them of the knowledge of how to survive from local resources, also pitted children against each other in, in a really brutal way. And we really have to understand it's a type of factory farming of our children, an industrial process to suit industrial large-scale production and urbanization. So when we segregate, you know, 31-year-olds in kindergarten, we're already creating a, a universe of elbows. It's impossible. You can't reach out a hand and help the other. So shouting, elbows and then you know, have one adult trying to manage this mess. Traditionally, before this industrial era, that never happened. The way we evolved in our DNA is a more cooperative way of being because we evolved naturally in diversified groups and the fundamental diversity was different ages together. So naturally, when you have people engaging every day from age one to age 80, you get a completely different fabric. And for me, you know, things that brought tears to my eyes were things like seeing the 80-year-old uncle walking with the one-year-old. And they yeah, and yeah. both were toothless and hairless, and they both could barely walk, and they both, you know, were slow and meant for each other. 
Yeah. Now, they spent a lot of time together, and it worked. It really worked. But even the relationship between three-year-old and the one-year-old was beautiful to experience. You know, because the three-year-old would naturally hold out a hand to help the one-year-old to walk. And talking about one-year-olds walking, it was also very interesting, as I did sort of little studies, you know, on childcare. And, but above all, I was there living, you know, year in and year out and observing these changes. And I once asked a group of mothers if they didn't worry if their child wasn't walking by age one. They could not understand the question. <laughs> what do you mean, worry? You know, and it just, you know, it became obvious that what they said was, of course, they're going to walk at some point. But it, that was, you know, that's a deep level understanding of the psychology of deeper security when we live in a way, you know, that we were meant to live. And I, I, yeah, so it's it's something that, of course, you know, as people hear me say this, you know, uh, all I, you know, I want to just encourage that we search for a deeper and broader understanding of why things have been going so wrong in our society. And partly we also need to open our eyes more to how global these problems are to understand better because we tend to remain within a national discussion. And it's very interesting because it's actually global media that are in control of the discourse that have been shaping our view of history, our view of, of life, uh, and all the time shaping it with this idea of progress and that we've got to keep rushing forward towards more technology, more growth, very closely linked to technology, and unquestioning urbanization. By the way, about urbanization, I would just like to mention that just the other day, a high-level expert, someone named Dr. Tim Lernig in England, uh, an advisor to the Treasury, came up with this big report to show that farming only contributes 1% to GDP. So let's stop farming. Let's import our food. Let's be like Singapore. Singapore is doing perfectly well. Now, that ecological and human illiteracy, that blindness, is really what's, what's running our world. And you can call it psychopaths, but not in the conventional sense. Many of these people are good people. They're good fathers. They they really try to do their best, but they are so blinded by their numbers and by their narrow discipline. You make so many insightful points, it's, it's hard to know which one to address. You know, I, I think that the, um, the separation of just distance-wise between the consumer and the product is startling. And, you know, I, I have three daughters, and uh, we're cooped up now in, you know, um, amongst the many... Um, 
uh, you know, during the global pandemic. And of course, you know, they're bouncing off the walls and um, I'm trying to use this opportunity to allay their consumer instinct, you know, and, yeah. and be like, and you're seeing a global shift in behavior. And I want to talk to you about that and how you feel about that. And if you're optimistic or, or if you're just essentially resigned to the fact that we're going to scurry back to our old consumptive ways or not. But, you know, my daughter, just because she doesn't know what else to do, we've done 15 art projects, you know, and she's like, I want this T-shirt. And I'm like, well, what T-shirt? She's like, I want this T-shirt. It's on Amazon. Can I order it, Dad, please? And I said, well, you know, maybe. But let's actually find out a little bit more about that T-shirt, how it was made and where it's come from. And, you know, of course she's rolling her eyes, you know, this is like, yeah, oh, you yeah. know, dad, <laughs> stop it with yeah. your, you know, with your story of separation and all this kind of stuff. And so I'm like, okay, I'm going to go do the research and I'll come back to you. This t-shirt, I mean, there's only so much information that I could find, but generally yeah. around yeah. The, yeah. the, the, the supply chain of a t-shirt of cotton that was grown essentially in Texas shipped to Indonesia to get combed and made into yarn, then shipped, you know, to Malaysia or or um, Bangladesh to get turned into cloth to get printed in China to then get shipped to New York to then get shipped to a distribution center for Amazon so it can get shipped to our house for essentially fourteen dollars and ninety nine cents. Yeah. And how yeah. does how does that make any sense? And what is the collateral damage of that process in yeah. so many different ways? You know, and obviously, and you know, you've pointed this out many times, there's no internalized costs in that process. But if you think about the carbon footprint of that process, um, if you think about the separation that you feel from that product, how, you know, Charles Eisenstein wrote this book called Sacred Economics, which became very influential for me. And that in our pursuit of being able to deliver low cost goods to my daughter or your daughter or anybody's daughters, what we've essentially done in the name of uh, operational efficiency through this process of commodification, we've stripped out essentially anything that is sacred. There is essentially, we're just wearing what we're wearing or what we're drinking or anything is that essentially what we've gone for is highly commodified, operationally efficient goods that we don't know who made them. We're completely divorced from who made, and they're all exactly the same. And, you know, I, I wonder now in this moment in history when people are have slowed down when they're in quarantine when they're in their homes when they're cooking when they're not driving when they're not flying when they're spending more time with their families when they might actually see their neighbor walking and and find out what their name is um yeah i i wonder that in this period of time, is there a reprioritization that is happening that can essentially create not only just a personal awareness of what makes life worthwhile, but you talk about the GDP, essentially give birth to new indices 
of what it really means to be successful. Um, and I wonder where you are <laughs> as you witness what's happening in the world right now, because you've been thinking and talking and writing and making movies about about localization for decades. And now yeah. we seem to be, you know, now that we've felt the, the breath of the apocalypse on our neck, you know, are we ready for global seismic change? I mean, look at what it's taken, you know, two months ago, no way, no way are we going to change our global behaviors. But here well, we are. No, it's interesting because my husband was saying until this pandemic, no way are we going to change. I was saying that by keeping my ear very close to the ground, because I ended up... <clears throat> When I first sort of saw this humongous change, which almost overnight, you know, led to divisiveness, literally Buddhists and Muslims had been living side by side for generations, and suddenly they were literally killing each other. After 10 years of being pushed into the town, intense competition for jobs, you know, like, it's like putting people into a cage, and their only way is to fight for themselves. And so this... You know, conflict is so linked to this herding into bigger and bigger cities and fear of life and this insecurity that this money supply creates. Then also seeing young people reject their own look, you know, feeling they had to look like the role models in the media. So, and seeing that overnight you created pollution that had never existed before. You create a gap between rich and poor that had never existed like that. So this sort of Massive systemic change, all in a negative direction, all of it. So I go back every year to sort of report, and every year, you know, literally like, you know, Munich, Paris, Stockholm, London, New York, San Francisco, giving talks. And in the 70s, there was a big movement to go back to the land. There was a real recognition we're going in the wrong direction. We want to be more connected to community and to the land. And there was enough power also on the back of Rachel Carson's knowledge that science had become too specialized. So she had warned about this blindness and putting some DDT over here and thinking it's perfectly safe. She exposed that actually we're affecting the entire web of life. Even on the other side of the world, it can have an effect. So there was this huge demand for decentralized economic structures and more holistic interdisciplinary science. And it actually had a bit of an impact. So I taught in one of the interdisciplinary departments of the University of Berkeley, and I was connected to some in Germany and Sweden. But what happened around the same time as the environmental crisis grew was that people in higher levels of power also became aware. And one of the key players in that I knew well, someone named Morris Strong, and his Danish wife, Hanne, who was passionate about nature, spirituality. She was passionate about nature and spirituality, and she uh, managed to persuade Morris this is really important. So he, becoming really serious about the environment, seeks to talk to his peers, the CEOs of the world, and also to Rohan and Brunton, the Prime Minister of Norway. And, and he builds up this global uh, attempt to really do something about the environment, which includes the big meeting in Rio in 92. What I saw was that 
as these power players got involved, the last thing they were looking at was the problem with centralized, globalized economic growth. They were serious about forests depletion, about climate, about but well, you know, I tried to talk to some of them also about the trade treaties that were deregulating global monopolies and while regulating every other player. And they didn't really want to hear that. And in fact, it's not been a very popular thing with anybody because it just seems so far removed. So as I see it, in order for us now to really ensure that this, um, you know, opportunity, it is an opportunity now to rethink. We are having, it's a bit like pushing the pause button. First of all, we need to realize and open our eyes to a quiet grassroots movement that has actually been there all along. What happened with that big hippie movement and the desire to go back to the land and more balance with nature and community, it got essentially co-opted. And it got co-opted primarily through the marketing of computers and the internet as a way for us to decentralize. That was the message. We were told, ah, look at this, you can have this elegant information society. The message was we're moving away from dirty industry where we dig things out of the ground and we transport them all over the place. No more of that. Information can be yours, can be mine at the same time. And we're moving into this clean information society. Now, my experience coming back and forth from the so-called global south or third world was that more and more of the environmentalists and people bought into that worldview because what was happening simultaneously with the help of those technologies was that the industry was shifting to the other side of the world, to the poor countries, to do the manufacturing, and all the time, the discussion was, ooh, climate change is becoming quite a problem. Uh, You know, don't drive your car, you know, turn off your light bulbs, even things like park in the shade. In the meanwhile, there was this enormous transformation of economic activity where government with global business was shifting the dirty industry out of sight. And there were these, you know, environmentalists saying, oh, yeah, we become so sustainable. The Hudson is cleaner. The Thames in London is cleaner. Look, on the other side of the world, bigger, dirtier industry than ever before, larger and larger, and engaged in more and more insane trade, insane trade. Now, I had already discovered in the 70s when I came back from Ladakh and started being aware of this business of things transported from far away being cheaper than local things. So I found out in Sweden at that time that they were shipping potatoes to Italy by road to be washed, put in plastic bags and shipped back again. Now, over the years in this era of supporting the global economy, that's turned into flying potatoes to the other side of the world, 
Apples were flown from England to South Africa to be washed, flown back again. Fish is flown from Norway to China to be deboned. Scallops from Tasmania flown to China, you know, flown back again. Right here in Byron Bay, they're flying macadamia nuts to China to be cracked open. Now, this insane trade, particularly in food, Let's remember, food is something everybody needs every day of their life. To have a system, an economic system, that is separating us further and further and further from that food that you know, we need about three times a day, you cannot imagine anything more obscenely wasteful and obscenely unhealthy. You know, we know we need fresh, nutritious food as much as possible. There is huge knowledge about the need to also come back to more indigenous varieties. People are recovering also wilder species of plants that have far more nutrition. And there's this incredible diversity. Now, quietly, at the grassroots, and, and I myself ended up just going more and more grassroots. I wasn't invited anymore to Harvard or Oxford to speak. I didn't get on any television programs, which I had a bit in the 70s and up to the mid-80s. But I found at the grassroots, there was still this soul. There was still a connection to the sacred. The sacredness, meaning the amazing miracle of life, the richness, the this, this, the truth that spiritual traditions have told us about, nothing ever the same, constant change, the uniqueness of every single cell in our bodies, every single leaf out there, that sacredness and beauty and joy of life. There were still people in touch with that. And we started helping, and I really, even in Los Angeles, I was there, when would it have been, very early on, helping to start one of the first farmer's markets, and many parts of the world we helped to pioneer this idea of starting a local food movement. And now we actually had, before the pandemic, we actually do have a local food movement that is global. But it doesn't recognize itself as global because we haven't been allowed to get it into the media. And the global media are controlling, have been controlling the discussion. And so I, before the pandemic, was still keeping uh, my passion and my health and my joy alive by being more in touch with the grassroots and seeing that it was on a micro scale. But I was seeing in every avenue of life, architects, doctors, theologians, discovering life-affirming, spiritual, connected ways of doing things. You know, the alternative health that was more holistic, that was more in touch with life, the eco-theology, the eco-psychology, the eco-architecture, every avenue of life there were there were, you know, people straying away from the dominant monolithic and, and very destructive monoculture of ideas and ways of doing things. That kept me hopeful. My husband would shake his head and say, yeah, yeah, you know, keep going, I, I'll support you, but had no hope really. After the pandemic, for the first time, and we've been together in 43 years, and for the first time in 43 years, he's saying, we may have a chance. We may really have a chance to change things now. 
So I see this as a an out, you know, sort of an outpouring of first of all, maybe out of fear. We can see everywhere people turning to local food supplies. Yeah. They are turning to even get their hands dirty and are planting a seed for the first time in their life. And I do want to make a big, big plea for people who are interested in the, the sort of new age spiritual movement to take this sort of food and farming reality much more seriously than, than they have tended to do. Because I'm seeing that for a child and for a young person, the ability to be engaged in planting a seed and seeing it grow and watering it is a profoundly spiritual experience. And it's one that it allows this in-depth, ongoing relationship with life, with sacred life, in a way that is, yeah, that is far more profound than we realize. And I also, you know, I would argue that it's in our DNA. We evolved closely connected to others in intergenerational community and deeply, intimately interdependent with the living life around us, the plants, the animals, all aspects of life. And now, um, so this turning towards the local food supply and even getting their hands dirty is actually a huge global movement. there's a lot of studies around how long it takes humans and there's a neuroplasticity component of this but essentially to develop new ingrained habits um, and we're sort of past that point now in much of the world where we now have been sequestered and we are becoming attuned to whether or not we like this new normal and my sense is that and I and I exclude the obvious frontline workers and people that are sick and that people that are enduring extreme pain or loss, um, and, and that's real. There is a human experience here that is real. Um, but I think for the rest of humanity um, that is largely sheltered at home, there is now the dawning of uh, uh, of am I not just happier? not driving, not flying? Am, am I not more efficient working remotely? Am I not happier being with my kids? Oh, guess what? They actually like me, <laughs> you know, and I like them. And um, and, and, and this is the, the piece of it, because it might last a few more months, to be honest, and, and potentially longer, that there are, that essentially we're being coerced into these new kinds of patterns and I think what you know what you said about the relationship between technology um, and localization was very interesting. I never really thought about it that way. Essentially, that in the name of sustainability, we're just moving the the dirt over there um, where we can't see it, um, yeah. and, and globalizing um, um, the carbon emission problem. But I do think that there is something interesting. Uh, there's a, a John Maynard Keynes quote that I actually I love that I discovered recently, which is 
it is easier to ship recipes than cakes and biscuits. <laughs> and I think that's from kids. I think that's from Schumacher. Who's oh, my really? Name. Okay. Well, we'll we'll look that up. We'll look it up. The small is beautiful. Um, you know, he, he was a, a German economist working in England, and he had a very similar experience to mine. In the fifties, he went to Burma and basically found the happiest people he'd ever encountered and no real poverty. So it forced him to completely rethink economics. And as we now look for, you know, a, a pattern, a paradigm and a system to embrace, I would urge everyone to read that book, Small is Beautiful. Hmm. And uh, it was, you know, very clear about the need to decentralize and to question and to look at technology to ensure that it remains in the hands of human scale institutions, that it does not come to dominate us as a mega system. And also, um, I think another really important part of our technology is to try to get away from our hyper-individualistic way of looking at things so that we, we need what I call big picture activism. We need to step back and look at the bigger picture and look at what's happened as a society, as a community. And, you know, there are many things that appear, you know, so small and handy and they appear to save us time. But if we actually step back and look at it, you know, what, you know, what these technologies have done in the last 30 years is to push us into faster and faster, more competitive behavior. And this idea that information can be yours and mine, you know, one of the biggest exports of the U.S. is patents, you know, and, you know, the, the control uh, of knowledge is greater than ever. And I think also another really important part of the big picture is to look at the structures that are problematic. So I would say that monoculture is the enemy yeah. and larger and larger monocultures uh, human and ecological, are essentially anti-life. Life is diversity, is this remarkable richness and diversity. And we, we, you know, we haven't seen clearly enough how an absolute inevitable part of the structural part we've taken with the tools and technologies is to centralize and urbanize and impose monoculture. So that's the sort of enemy. And they the biggest enemy of all is the blindness that has been part and parcel of this path. We've been encouraging, you know, I, I was talking about, you know, at the deepest level, going way back, you know, what I was talking about in Ladakh, you know, training children in those schoolrooms was actually a training that meant as they went through their entire schooling, they learned nothing about how to build a house, how to grow food, how to do any of the basics that are essential as a part of our economy, not a word. If you wanted to learn to grow food, you went to agricultural college. If you wanted to learn how to build a house or a road, you went to engineering college, and it's on and on. And in those institutions, already, you know, going way back, what was being taught is what suited big business, what suited giant industrial forms of production. and after the Second World War, that meant with lots of cheap oil, so that oil <clears throat> was, you know, made artificially cheap when it actually cost millions of lives and huge amounts of money. 
And another, of course, part of the secret that Charles also talks about is that the way money was created and we've allowed this deregulation of global banks and businesses to get to the point now where it's the banks that should be under democratic control. The banks have been giving our governments their marching orders, and not just the banks, you know, the, the Monsantos and the Arthur Daniels Midlands and these giants have been essentially ordering our governments to give them more freedom and to regulate everyone operating in the local, regional, national arena. So here we have a, an economic system where everyone that's operating at that level is not only strangled by regulation, many of them absolutely counterproductive and stupid and anti-ecological, but often in the name of health and safety. And those same players are strangled by taxes. And in the meanwhile, those that operate globally, you know, pay no tax and have no regulations, and in fact are telling government, if you don't do as we say, we will sue you, we'll take you to a court. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And that's, you know, under what's called ISDS clauses, investment state dispute settlement. And, you know, it's, I'm absolutely convinced that almost every sane person, if they really stepped back and looked at that, they would say, that's crazy. You know, it's a joke to talk about democracy. If we allow this techno-economic juggernaut to be, you know, doing this, uh, you know, making a joke of democracy and all the time imposing this sort of deadening monoculture, uh, I, I really believe that if people fully understood and comprehended this, that we would be having a massive vote for change. Thank you for listening to today's show. If you would like to learn more about Helena and her work, please check out localfutures.org. That is localfutures.org. And if you have any questions or comments about today's show, email me directly at jeffk at onecommune.com. I love hearing from you, and I try to reply to every single email. That's it from the Commune for this week. My name is Jeff Krasnow. And I am here for you.